future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Pierre Lint. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Playson, the fastest-growing digital entertainment supplier for the global gaming industry. Operating across 20 regulated markets and with more than 140 partners worldwide, Playson's diverse portfolio of enthralling casino games, captivating tournaments, and promotional tools are proven to maximize player engagement and retention. To find out more, visit www.playson.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Play, an industry-leading content provider of slots, live casino, bingo, and virtual sports. Pragmatic Play excels at creating an immersive, engaging, and mobile-focused experience for players with over 200 HTML5 games that are available in all currencies, 31 languages, and all major certified markets. Discover more at pragmaticplay.com. So, Russell, let's uh, lean into it. I mean, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast today. You're the director and gaming lead of uh, KPMG, of course, good friends of, of us here at Give Me Next. Uh, we're very happy to have been working with you for the last couple of years. You've been helping us uh, in the conferences and all these uh, things. But I was really curious to bring you here today to kind of take a bit of a pulse of the uh, iGaming industry. And to start off with today, I wanted to ask you just what, in your opinion, are the current trends that are driving and changing the uh, industry today, would you say? Big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so firstly, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Um, so typically always trying to gauge that pulse of where the industry is and where it's going. And as the industry has evolved, it's become increasingly more complex to have that pulse across the board. But generally, the thing that we see is the rise and continued parameters closing down on from a regulatory standpoint. So mm. we see the the close of these parameters starting to squeeze margins further that is starting to drive certain operators or suppliers decisions so what could these look like um we've seen the rise of course of MA, particularly over the last couple of years whether you're looking at um, aspects of acquiring just to benefit from economies of scale or you could be looking at certain companies that are trying to capture aspects of the value chain um, or you may be looking at things such as what we've been seeing in the US where there's the philosophy of buy or build. And very often it's, it's, it's apparent that the US like to buy rather than, than build. And that's what's contributed to the wave of M&A. That also has a knock-on effect because then the M&A criteria for what makes an attractive asset um, can vary somewhat drastically compared to what was driving a lot of the M&A appetite within Europe. Um, and there are a lot of factors that could contribute to that, be it the time of the market, the customer acquisition versus that of retention, um, that first mover advantage, etc. But um, that is driving a bit of a philosophy where we're seeing a lot of the operators that have an exit plan, particularly geared up for the likes of the US in the near future, where they're trying to cover their tracks to make sure that they are operationally secure, we'll say 
to look as appealing or as strong then to a potential acquirer then out in the out in the states. We've seen this even when we're looking at like a, an Entain or a Kindred then closing down then some of the grayer markets or darker gray markets then to be going into that. Um, that's one aspect, and we could probably spend quite a lot of time yes. on that. But but if we look at um, beyond the margins being squeezed, the the, the responsible gameplay aspect. Um, that is driving down certain limitations then for, for operators, startups, operators that perhaps are just focused on a single market at a point in time. Um, that coupled with the likes of advertising restrictions, all of these aspects we often see out coming from, let's say, the UKGC or the Swedish Gambling Authority. More recently also we're seeing the stuff that's happening out in Germany and in Holland. That is starting to... Um, steer different considerations. And to be honest, one of the latest conference, last conferences I was at, um, the operators don't normally talk to me too much in, on a formal basis about their darker gray or black markets. And yeah. that seemed to be the standard, the standard um, conversation where for those operators that haven't got a growth plan for the US or an exit strategy, then they were in the US, then they are looking to carve out part of their business and help fund their white markets through the less regulated markets. And of course that presents a number of different problems that also feeds into the lack of empirical knowledge then from a regulatory perspective that further feeds into the squeezing of margins because that's the black market that's growing and they add on certain measures that complicate it even further than for the above board operators. There's a whole circle and there are many, many different aspects that are contributing to it <laughs> at this moment. Yeah, th these are three very interesting points that you bring up. So, so what you're saying is essentially the last couple of years, uh, the M&A activity has exploded, of course. And I think from a macro perspective, the 2020, 2021, and I suppose the start of 2022 mm. was somewhat outlier years. Uh, and uh, I hear often now as the Canada markets have come back to earth again, that uh, when you plan your 2023, you should think from the perspective of 2019, which was kind of like the last normal year. Like how were you planning your strategy and operation at that time? Uh, operational excellence, uh, did you, like, do you need to employ a lot of people? I mean, obviously there's a lot of tech companies and argument companies today that are uh, cutting uh, staff today. Yeah. And so the question is uh, from founder level and from CEO level is like, uh, how much staff do you need in order to, uh, op to, to continue your operation? Um, so, so obviously the markets have come back to earth again. Do, how does that affect the um, M&A side of, side of things? Are you still seeing transactions taking place? Uh, do you expect that uh, a lot of these like adventurous startups that popped up in 2020, 2021, are you expecting that um, they won't be able to reach uh, an acquisition eventually? And obviously many of them are cash hungry. And um, you, would, uh, you would imagine at some point when they are not able to raise capital, uh, will we see kind of like a, a mass casualty of uh, startups that won't make it? So I think generally the startup scene for operators and suppliers has become, the market's a lot tougher, right? To be operating and be successful in the market today, not least because you need to be securing licenses in multiple territories. Gone are the days where I was super envious, where you'd have a quarter of a million and turn it into a million within 12 months. <laughs> At least that was my perception. Um, it's, it's, um, it's become a lot trickier. 
I see the startups that are in the industry right now either have great products and they're looking to probably have an exit strategy within two to three years and then they've got deep pockets backing them and then they're probably eyeing up one of the largest, let's say, operators. In most cases, it's normally a strategic operator to be taking on then they're offering, unless you're looking at a specific VC, for instance, in the States that, let's say, focuses on B2Bs um, exclusively. Then there could be certain attractive models over there to be acquiring these businesses. Generally speaking, I think it's a tough market for, for, for startups. I think we did see that rise of M&A which fueled a lot of the dreams and ideas, not least with the affiliates as well, as we saw the US market open and Katana driving a lot of the acquisitions right. and better capital. I was focused on building up a lot of targets within the US and there was a massive disparity between valuations where you'd be talking to a great team out in the US. They'd be really good, smart, switched on team using different mediums to engage their audiences. but they would be a team of three or four people and you'd be saying so how much are you earning and they'd like oh we're we're, we're pre-revenue at the moment and say how much are you valuing the business now oh, 50 million yes and that's largely stemming from the likes of bc then acquiring the action network you know where they suddenly think that they've become multi-millionaires and so there's the disparity and perhaps an element of immaturity that we've seen in the states when we see what happens when regulation starts to clamp down in a specific territory and shift the market focus from one that's customer acquisition focused to one that's more retention based. On the other end, we saw, particularly over 2020 and 21, um, a lot of interest on the SPAC front. And we did a lot of uh, SPAC deals and there were a lot of failed SPAC deals then as well that had happened. Regulation also started to squeeze that avenue because originally then it was a faster way to be listed, but then they started to clamp down on certain aspects over there that starts to make it less attractive, less streamlined than it once was. Um, so I think what we've certainly seen a bit of a, a, a quiet period on M&A, and we're probably going to see a continued quiet period on M&A compared to what we've seen over the last couple of years. I think what will likely happen is okay so if we're looking at a new emerging market we look at latam for instance and that's going to be really interesting okay then the, the 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 value per customer may be lower than that let's say an american or a canadian for instance but the volumes then are super high um so we may see then a lot of more acquisitions like what we see with betson for instance going in and acquiring business that have that local feel appreciation for what's going on in that market similar things perhaps with india Japan is more complex from a regulatory perspective and debatable as to whether it's dark or light gray or <laughs> black. Yes. Um, but that would often be a driving force for the M&A. What I suspect we'll probably see in the US is that once regulation really kicks in and responsible gambling becomes more of a core consideration, be it as a result of a lawsuit, let's say, that one disgruntled player has and takes down one operator or manages to, 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 to secure a large chunk of revenue off the back of some mishap that happened with whatever operator or land-based operator in that territory, um, I think we'll start to see a little bit more consolidation happen in the US. In, in essence, I see the US fast-tracked. Everything is bigger than what we saw in Europe, but I think it's on a faster trajectory than what we've seen 
in Europe. But there are some exciting things and new players coming to the market that we'd have never imagined, like like a Disney with ESPN and 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 that I know we'll probably be touching upon then convergence of the spheres a little bit later, which is another. Absolutely, topic. yeah. On the on the note of uh, Disney, uh, there was uh, this like ever re resurfacing question if uh, Disney is going to eventually enter the online sports betting uh, vertical and. Uh, as you know, um, uh, Bob Chak Chapek, he was ousted of uh, Disney here the other week and uh, Bob Iger, legendary CEO of Disney, came back and, and um, there was one of the um, directors of ESPN yesterday did a panel or the other day he did a panel where he was asked this question, what is the current state of play for ESPN entering uh, the sports betting uh, vertical because uh, a month and a half ago it felt like it was a done deal between ESPN and uh, DraftKings at that time and then we haven't heard anything yeah. and he said that well now with uh, with Bob Iger uh, entering the CEO position at Disney again basically he they will need to convince Disney that uh, this is something that is uh, reflecting well on the brand itself because Bob Iger is not only going to see this potential deal from a ESPN uh, lens, he will see it with the Disney lens and yeah. uh, will this reflect well. So uh, it's kind of like the state of play now is they have to take a step back and uh, again uh, look at uh, if this is something that Disney will want to pursue. But he also made it clear that um, ESPN is not looking to build any proprietary opera operations, right? They are looking to license the brand. Yeah. Is that important? Yeah. 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 What I, do you think? No, I tend to agree. I mean, if, if we look at, so there's an association risk. I don't, I wouldn't have imagined. I, I typically, I know we're talking about an ESPN within Disney, but I keep on imagining like a Mickey Mouse, for instance, over there. Um, MickeyMousePet.com. There, <laughs> yeah, there, there we go. go. <laughs> um, there is a market opportunity. There are a lot of um, core competencies or USPs that a large group like Disney would have that could um, allow it to command a major competitive advantage. But it is an industry that is would be new to them, and so it makes sense then to be partnering in certain cases. There's also the risk, the risk not least with getting something wrong, and we see what happens when fines, be it historic fines or current fines, what impact that has on the share price of a business. But also the US, and this is something I've been getting my head around, the, the way of doing business in the US is, is quite different to that of, of Europe, where my understanding is from a US perspective, their goal has been to rule out any form of, of criminal um, legacy or activity. So the, the checks are incredibly thorough. And you've heard the example of if you've got a scar and you haven't reported the scar, then what else are you hiding? And I've heard, I've heard of oh a bunch God. of stories. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so there's the historic activity, which obviously needs to be investigated if they were to go down directly through the license route. That's perhaps a reason why they would choose then to partner with an existing licensed operator. Not to say that Disney has 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 baggage then in in, in its in, yeah. in its cupboard by any means, but the, it, there's obviously history that needs to be looked through. Um, and the other thing is, it's game theory, isn't it? It's like, can they afford to be building something? which may be more cost-effective, but they need to be hiring those people and that's gonna take a lot of time. And many people consider the opportunity in the US to be securing that marketplace today and, and perhaps yesterday, you know? So um, 
I can understand why, what their kind of stance is and what they're trying to do. I think it's going to be really exciting to see what other parties similar to, to the Disneys of this world are going to be doing. And I think these are going to be the movers and shakers going forward. For sure. I mean, staying on the topic of the US, uh, currently there are the, the big four, say the big four players in the States that uh, together have something like some ridiculous amount of market share, like 80 plus percent together, right? Uh, um, whereas in Europe, it's very different. You have, uh, you know, hundreds, potentially thousands of uh, different brands that are sharing the piece of the pie here. Um, do you think that it will remain like this in, in the US, that uh, it is a market for the, uh, for the giants? Uh, we have potentially fanatics entering the game and yeah, ESPN down the line. But fundamentally, uh, is uh, the market only for the big players? And uh, finally as well, we also start seeing victims now as well, right? With Carousel Group folding the other yeah. week, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, Fubo uh, TV as well, folding as well. Yeah. Um, this almost plays in more and more to the narrative that uh, the dust has settled and uh, these four giants are kind of the rulers of the market. So. I mean, I think I think the US is an incredible, incredibly expensive market to be entering and to be operating successfully within. So when we talk about the big four, um, what are the real profits that are being seen today? And if we use the same measurements that we measure successful European-faced operators with, I'm not seeing, at least I haven't seen, that same degree of profitability in the US yet. So I think it is a bit of a wait and see and hope that once the market stabilizes a little bit and the rest of the states open up and perhaps the other verticals start to become more widely regulated, that there are other avenues. Um, I think, in my view, I think it would be tougher for an unknown name to be exerting significant dominance in the US. I think you may be seeing businesses, once again, we're linking it to a Disney and ESPN, for instance, where they may have core followers, a lot of USPs that they can leverage, that they can rock the boat of the likes of the, the big four, if you like. But I think it's going to take something very, very special. And if not just deep pockets, then incredibly deep pockets to be <laughs> able to, to rock that boat effectively. Um, the rich get richer. Well, yeah. Russell, that's, <laughs> a, that's the world we live in. Yeah. So, so Russell, the, uh, the share prices have been kind of fluctuating widely. If we look at, uh, I think the prime example is uh, DraftKings, of course, which is still a very speculative uh, business overall, right? Uh, the uh, shareholders haven't been able to kind of figure out where to price uh, uh, DraftKings specifically. And I suppose that um, the reason for that is uh, that it's so difficult to understand where the market eventually will land. Yeah. Um, and so th the question is, uh, on the US, from a US perspective, do, do, uh, what's your and KPM KPMG's view on the uh, agriculture industry at large? Like, do you think that... Uh, uh, further down the line, you know, the, the goals of the operators now is to reach profitability by the end of 2023, or I think DraftKings pushed it into 2024 now. Um, do you think that the market will eventually live up to these expectations uh, that has been so high on the industry since, uh, since Passpo was repealed? Well, I won't speak on behalf of, let's say, my, my US colleagues, because no. they may have a different, a different okay. view. But um, look, I, I, I think that the US market is really difficult to be navigating. And I think the profitability, those parameters are already squeezed from the start. 
And I think that there are going to be many other factors that come into play that are going to be complicating the profitability even further as time goes on, not least the point of the responsible gambling, which I know we keep on mentioning. But when we see real responsible gambling, I mean, an example, okay, um, in one of the, so right now, the advertising side of things, we're seeing it in Europe, restrictions or advertising bans, really, really tricky, right? And almost stifling the market, making it very difficult for a newcomer to be getting their brand out there. What are we seeing in the US right now? We see them advertising university stadiums, football stadiums, you know, where there are kids, for instance. So I really do believe, and it's not to say that the US is going to follow the exact same trajectory as the Europe did, because I, I, I think that it's just a different way of doing business. Yeah. But I do think that there will be certain measures that will clamp down and make the margin for error um, tighter. So whether they will be profitable in 2024 or 2025, I'm sure that they will be at some point, but it would be really difficult to be saying, okay, it's going to be by this date, just because there are so many unknown factors. And regulation is what we've seen in Europe that has really squeezed those margins and has forced operators and suppliers and affiliates to be a lot more optimized with their inputs a lot more calculated. So if you're looking at CPAs, for instance, what is the real value then of a player, for instance? I've heard a rumor that operators are looking to try and switch more so to the rev share side of things, but that brings up then more complications from, uh, from the affiliate side of things, because most of them are certified then on a CPA basis. So then there are certain considerations there. I used to be an affiliate oh, really? prior, prior to having joined KPMG. So I, okay. I was an affiliate for four years, primarily focused on the UK market sports book. Right. I didn't know that, Russell. Um, so I used to be at ICE back in the, back in the, in the wilder days. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and LAC, yeah, LAC. Yes. Um, and back then, we used to primarily like to work on CPA because it allowed us to kind of quantify the input versus that at the output. For instance, if we were putting in 20,000 in terms of advertising spend, we knew that that would generate 50,000, 60,000 euro in terms of CPA. It's far harder to be doing that on a rev share basis, but it's a lot more sustainable, right, from an industry perspective. So you'd see today and shortly after, I'm going back even 2012, where a lot of operators were pushing for the rev share just because they ride the same wave where well, you ride the same wave as as they do essentially and it's a calculated risk so when you see cases where an operator may be offering an extortionate amount of money to an affiliate for a cpa be it on a casino basis or a sportsbook player there has to be a science in understanding what is that ARPU, for instance of that actual player that calculated amount beyond that of just saying yeah we got 10,000 players this year for March Madness, for instance. So I feel as though that element of sophistication is going to play a role and that's going to force operators to be a lot more um, concise with their approach. Couple that with regulations. Couple the other thought of 
the possibility of California. You know, now that's stalled. The possibility of Texas that's stalled as well. But those are going to those are going to be interesting markets. But then trying to anticipate what sort of regime is it going to be? I mean, that's the other thing in the U.S. It's we complain about the lack of harmonization within Europe, but you see very very different things happening in the states then as well. So is it going to be based on a New York model or is it going to be similar to a Pennsylvania? So all these things are going to play a factor. So. I don't know whether they're going to be profitable next year or the year after, but I do think that there's going to have to be a lot more thought behind the compliance, a lot more investment behind the compliance teams and behind the teams that are actually looking at the bottom line and overall value. So speaking of uh, affiliation, uh, I had a really interesting uh, conversation actually with, uh, with Per Helberg, who's the CEO of uh, Playstar. So he's the former CEO of Catena Media, it's the major affiliate, of course. And he talks about the um, environment in the United States, that uh, the player behavior is so wildly different mm -hmm. from a player in Europe. So he made an example that uh, in Sweden, for example, the average player will make six deposits before they churn. And generally when a player in Sweden churn, it doesn't come back, mm -hmm. right? When it's churned, it's churned. The, the reactivation is very difficult in, in, in that market. There's a lot of licensed operators in Sweden, of course, it's like 250 or something at this point, uh, different uh, operator brands. Whereas in the state of uh, New Jersey, where Playstar is active, so you have something like 40 licensed brands or something like that in, in, the, uh, in the state of New Jersey. And the American player tends to be a lot more loyal towards the brand uh, over there. And not only that, but they, even if they churn, they tend to be much more open to actually returning uh, to the player. And, and so Per Helberg, he said, basically, there is no reason for an, an affiliate not to pursue rep share Interesting. in the United States. But he said, um, particularly those who are publicly traded, if you, so, so Catena Media, Better Collective, uh, Raketech, for example, are predominantly CPA based. So they will get this uh, fixed amount of money uh, when a player signs up and deposits. Yeah. But uh, he mentioned that, so obviously this is uh, revenue that's, uh, that is, um, you get the bulk of the revenue now rather than over a, a long period of time. And for a, a publicly traded company, this is good because you are able to meet the shareholders' expectation in the next quarter. And um, acquisition-hungry company like Catena Media and Better Collective is very important for them to report good numbers in the short term. Yeah. Uh, however, then you have organizations like uh, uh, like GIG, mm -hmm. who are predominantly rep share based, mm -hmm. and they have built a sustainable revenue over time. And you see, if you look at the stock market prices today, you compare Catena Media, Better Collective, both have been performing really bad in the last year. And then you look at GIG, who is, uh, uh, who is doing really well today, because this uh, rep share model is, uh, is now bearing fruit yep. for GIG, because it's a much more sustainable and more, much more long term. And so uh, if the American player uh, generally tends to, uh, tends to play a lot longer and deposit a lot uh, more times before they churn, then obviously the rev share deal becomes much more lucrative than the kind of short term CPA deal. Yep. Yeah, that's how he summarized it. it. It makes a lot of sense. And and I know that there has been a focus over recent years, even just looking at it from a European perspective, where operators wanted to shed or reduce the amount of reliance that they have on affiliates. It's, I mean, back in the days, so, so I, and I wasn't one of the first affiliates. I was there in 2009. But even back <laughs> then, then there were people who were 
just on the lifetime value of the player. So there are people just sitting, lying down on a beach, you know, yeah. relaxed. They've made their money, you know, with their traffic that they sent through in 2006, 2007. Yeah. And, and, the, and the operator is obliged to be paying them the, 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 the rev share for, for the lifetime of that particular player. So there, there goes loyalty <laughs> for you, you know. Um, so I think it, it, it really varies. And I think I can understand why there's a a push for the CPA. Having said that, I remember seeing on my dashboard there was a, one particular player who had lost about uh, two million. <laughs> this <is> pre-responsible gambling. My CPA was thirty pounds, so that particular operator <laughs> did very well. <laughs> God damn it! Anyway. <laughs> The good old days. Uh, well, speaking about uh, the the good old days, one of the kind of major points that you mentioned earlier in the podcast that is uh, driving the industry, one of the current trends you mentioned, the kind of gray slash black versus white strategy. And um, it's an interesting point, I think, because uh, it feel, almost feels like the industry is dividing to some extent now, where, yeah. as you mentioned, some operators uh, are pursuing the regulated strategy and perhaps many of them are, are uh, publicly traded companies or, as you mentioned, they are gearing up to be uh, acquired at some point. And then you have the other part of the markets where I think in the maybe the last one and a half years, one year or something like that, it really feels like a lot of operators that, ha that were welcoming to uh, regulation in like 2018 when uh, Sweden regulated and, and uh, the assumption was that more uh, European uh, countries would be regulated. Um, it, it was many operators who welcomed the regulation at that time, but then it turned out that uh, a lot of the regulated markets became unsustainable, essentially. Yeah. So many of these operators, it feels like they are dancing on the line today of profitability. Um, some of them are even losing money and so on. And so the only choice for them is to basically turn towards the gray and the black markets. If you follow that, like if you go down the line in the next coming years, what do you, th how do you think this will play out? Because the gray market to an extent, I mean, it's limited and how long can operators sustain themselves for before there is so, action? So I think you're, you're, you're spot on. And I, I make a bit of a um, classification between the gray. So I do split between light gray and dark gray and then black. And it's as you say, yeah, there are a lot of operators that are saying this is no longer sustainable for us. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. So because of the regulations or restrictions, we're talking about the operators, like you said, who were once regulated or excited to be entering then that white market found that it's no longer as sustainable or they cannot be competing to the same degree as an operator that has deeper pockets and can be benefiting from economies of scale. So they are focused more on those darker markets, the turkeys, for instance, which is a black market and coming up with, let's say, creative ways of being able to target that market. Um, and I don't see that trend stopping. I see it increasing even amongst affiliates. There are a great deal of affiliates now that are supporting then the marketing efforts of many of these operators. Sprinkle a bit of crypto then as well on that. And that's a way then to facilitate certain payments and be able to entice some VIPs to the picture. I think the real, so I don't see it stopping. I see it, I see it continuing at least for the foreseeable future. My fear is that it's the black market, and let's call it black market or legal market in general, that is feeding 
a lot of the concerns from, let's say, a political or a regulatory perspective. Because if you look at the Sweden, for instance, right, and you're looking at a regulated outfit that's working within the parameters, then they are doing everything that they can. Sure, there may be a, a fine from time to time. Normally, they're historic fines, and they would have improved then on their processes or policies since that two-year um, stint, and then it would have been made public a week ago, let's say, two years on. But it's the other operators that are... Um, potentially causing or fueling mm -hmm. the lack of unsustainable regulation as a result of their kind of wider parameters that they're working within. And then it's, you wonder what is a regulator going to be doing to clamp down on that? Because if they can clamp down on offshore operators or operators that are explicitly prohibited from targeting that market, then that should be a rosier future for those um, um, white operators, if you like. But you can't be closing it down. Even I mean, there was a there was a research thing. Then even from a crypto standpoint, where the UK Research Institute found that the majority of operators in the UK that are target that are offering accepting crypto illegally, aren't carrying out any form of KYC. They aren't carrying out any yeah. any enhanced due diligence. They're just checking, validating off the back of an email. And what are the regulators going to do? They can't they can't be going and 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 switching off the funds. So it's a market that's essentially a gray area and they're not having any self-regulatory measures or anything like that which spells bad news for those regulated bodies because the gambling industry whether you are treading in the legal or in the illegal or partially legal um, that's going to have a one bad apple or potentially bad apple I feel as though it's going to have a unfortunate effect on the industry at, at large and that's yeah. what shifts the needle on public perception yeah yeah i think it was uh, it was stake.com that, that uh, was in trouble now in the in the uk media because uh, one of the reporters had uh, deposited money at a stake uh, sending in a picture of a chewing gum as uh, their like kyc picture and it was approved <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah that's uh, that's uh, all i suppose yeah um I mean, it's a, it's it's an interesting uh, point as well, and um, you know, if the kind of tier two operators uh, have had difficulty now to navigate this uh, regulatory landscape, and the only way for them is to turn uh, grey, is there a path for them to uh, uh, to pursue a more sustainable uh, strategy towards uh, profitability? For example. Do we need to see consolidation between the tier twos? Like, what, what if um, what if some of the tier twos here in Malta that uh, are struggling, for example, would just band together, merge, and create one bigger operator? Like, is, is it, I don't know. Like, what is the way out of this? It used to be a thought I used to have. If you're yes. looking at tier two and and or mid tier, and then they band together and then have deeper pockets, leverage the technologies. Um, I think the struggle is. It depends what the game plan is. Is there an exit strategy? So there are plenty of of investors that are, let's say, tired of, let's say, having invested in UK-focused businesses and looking for, let's say, debatably lighter grey markets where the margins are broader, the shareholders are yeah. potentially happier. Um, but it comes down to the game plan. Is the game plan to be carrying on seeing growth organically within those markets without an exit strategy or a or a short or medium term exit strategy, then potentially. But then if they're looking for an exit strategy, once again, from a US perspective, or even if we're looking at the PEs, so if you're looking at a Blackstone, a CVC, for instance, an Apollo, 
the factor that they're looking at today and will almost certainly be looking at a lot more in the future is on the ESG front. And if you're looking at the environmental, the social and the governance, that's the G, that's the governance aspect. So understanding where that business has operated, how is it securing? So it's the ESG is shifting the perspective of not how profitable are is that business it's starting to introduce new questions which is how are you profitable in those markets so you need to be identifying where those funds are coming from and how you're getting them and if you can articulate them in a sustainable manner then that's going to improve the value of your business so these PEs are saying that in order to balance out some of their green stocks versus brown stocks if you like then they need to be focused on sustainable businesses and if you look at the gambling sphere which can sometimes be considered to be a sin stock, then they need to be looking at the good aspects that that business has, the kind of almost net positive impact that that business has, to be upping its own overall ESG score. Otherwise, it will bring it down, which will make it less attractive. And the other aspect is even from a capital markets perspective. It's today already before CSRD comes into play, we're seeing a 14% increase on a beta multiples. That's today for those sustainable businesses. So I think banding together is interesting. I think it would be a really complicated shareholder <laughs> structure and a lot of shareholders. I don't necessarily see it as long term. I think that, that I think that there is going to be um, it's the the market has become a lot a lot tighter and 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 I think if we want to see, be seeing more of a sustainable future to the industry, removing that wrong public perception or what's often considered to be wrong, you need to be having a lot of um, operators that are looking at things sustainably and for the long term. Can the industry be ESG friendly? I mean, I spoke to your friend uh, uh, Stephen Myers here the other week, and we had a long discussion around uh, ESG and iGaming specifically. Uh, he made the point that he does not think that uh, the iGaming industry is um, a sin stock, uh, essentially. But um, the Swedish pension funds would disagree, uh, regardless before or after the regulation in Sweden. Uh, they do not want to touch uh, the industry. Uh, from your point of view, and uh, just also if you take the perspective of the kind of the pension funds and other investors uh, on a macro level, do you think that they will ever be able to see our industry as ESG friendly? And what do we need to do in that case? So my hope is yes. <laughs> I think it's 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 an area I'm investing heavily in, and I know Malta is going to be investing heavily um, in 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 this initiative. Mm. Um, I think there's a bit of a pervasive misunderstanding as to what ESG is. So right now, many of the smaller operators are looking at it as like a tick box exercise. The bigger guys, so you're looking at a Betson, an Entain, a Kindred, these guys have been looking at sustainable strategies, looking at their journey to zero, their, yeah. their arc systems, they're looking at 888 William Hill are looking at their carbon neutrality then as well from a retail perspective. Um, typically, the industry looks at three areas, which is responsible gambling, the carbon footprint and the diversity aspect, which are easy factors to be measuring. But there are far more areas that industry could be shouting about 
or capturing because it's 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 easy to say ESG is going to be great and there is going to be strategic appeal but right now there are question marks as to how it should be measured how it should be voiced right now you can't be compare how do you compare Kindred's journey to zero with that of Entain's arc system for instance there right. are different measures so if you can bring in a bit of harmonization over there and start to compare apples with apples then that starts to set a framework for what an operator should be doing, and it allows for transparency and ongoing reporting, which starts to bring comfort. There are many other areas. If we look at R&D, we look at social contribution, for instance, it's something that the industry is pretty good at when it comes down to carrying out certain measures that contribute to society, but the industry isn't as good at shouting out about it. Um, and if you look at some of the strategic benefits, whether you're looking at a Gen Z person or the eventual Gen Alphas, who are probably about 12 years old now. Um, the idea behind ESG is, is a draw. Probably you and I, I mean, I, I never really used to focus much on ESG. I didn't know much about it until the last few years where you start watching David Attenborough a little yeah, bit more, understand right. the seriousness that this isn't just a matter of saying this is a tick box exercise. I get goosebumps saying it because it's, yes. it's, this is a matter of the quality of life for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. Um, so I think anyone who's not seeing it is in for a, for a shock. Um, but there's the strategic benefit that comes from it with your customers that they're going to be more conscious. If we look at an industry that doesn't have um, or isn't considered to have a high degree of loyalty, that's a great way to be able to be building up that loyalty. You look at an industry that sometimes struggles from a talent perspective, particularly if you're bringing in somebody from outside industry um, to lead, be leading a position, let's say as a CFO, having though that strategic consciousness, that ESG framework is going to be a reason why that person would choose to work with that business because they understand you're having more of a net positive impact in spite of the association. And I tend to agree with Steve, you cannot compare alcohol and tobacco without a gambling, but the industry hasn't been great at being dealing with its reputation. And this is one of the things that, that the industry needs to be changing because, and it needs to be changing it by carrying out these initiatives. So even when you're looking at your, um, I mean, there are certain incentives, even from a capital markets perspective, where you're looking at borrowing certain funds for green measures. If you can articulate the R&D that you're carrying out, you can get them at more beneficial rates. Your suppliers, and this is another point, if you're looking at um, a smaller group or a supplier that may fall outside the parameters of the ESG CSRD reporting, if you look at McDonald's, for instance, so McDonald's right now is going off to all of their suppliers and saying, guys, by 2024, 2025, you need to be neutral on this aspect where you need to be identifying these measures and report it and hit this mark. You can't do it, then we're going to drop you as a supplier. So there's an indirect pressure. So if you're looking at an Entain, a Kindred, Betson, Flutter, then there is going to be pressure on the smaller studios, for instance, on the affiliates, to be understanding how they're conducting their business and to make sure it's sustainable. And I think all of this kind of plugs into the earlier question as well. It needs to be sustainable for the way to be forward looking, because I think this is going to become far more front of mind yeah. over the coming years. Do the operators have this luxury today to think uh, about the ESG long-term strategy when there is so much uh, headwind regulatory-wise and compliance-wise? That is keeping the operators uh, head scratching from day to day, uh, you know, that is really weighing down the entire organization. Do they have the luxury of 
But I wouldn't coin it. I wouldn't coin it as a luxury because it is going to be a necessity okay. for them to be reporting. Um, the question is, are they going? And you know how the industry is. The industry has always been notoriously good. If you if you draw a line, industry level, and you manage to convince one party to cross that line, it's not that single operator or supplier that's celebrated. It's, from an outside perspective, it's everyone else who hasn't crossed that line is seen to be is seen to be falling foul. Um, I know that there are a lot of things going on, but this is going to be a compliance consideration, but it's also going to be an operational a key consideration. So it's not a nice to have, it's going to be a necessity, both from a strategic and from a reporting standpoint. And I think that for those operators, because you need to be reporting on the year 2024 and 2025, you've got time to be building it, to be identifying it, to understand your strengths. And that's going to help set you aside then in the future when it comes down to an exit or building up loyalty, winning over new customers and retaining the right talent. I think the challenge that the industry has in general, like say, I know that you don't like to compare it to alcohol or tobacco, but I think the wider population do like to couple us into this. So, so let's just kind of go there for a moment. Um, in the alcohol industry, pretty much most people say uh, drink alcohol on a monthly basis, uh, something like that. So they understand the experience of drinking alcohol, right? Whether it's a, a beer at the uh, at the football game or just uh, you know going out to Pacheville for a chicken night out, whatever. But how many people gamble online regularly? Few people, right? It's not that many people who who, who do gamble. I think in Sweden. I mean, it's a small minority, 10% or something like that of the population have gambled online in the last year, something along those lines. Yeah. And so uh, policymakers, uh, investors, the pension funds, so on and so forth, uh, they will judge the industry without having any experience themselves of the industry. And so sometimes it feels like the industry can do a lot of good things, but it will never reach the majority who doesn't uh, have an insight into the industry. And um, from an ESD perspective, I think that is the biggest challenge uh, that the industry have is just how do you reach those people that are not interested or they are not involved in our industry since they are the majority of people. That to me is the biggest challenge, I think. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not a straightforward answer. So you're always going to have people from the sidelines who aren't part of the industry that are going to be just associating it with a taboo industry, for instance, and the initiatives that are doing or the fines that are being advertised over there is just fueling that thought. I mean, if, if, we, if we look, that's why I think that there's an element of being able to shout out about the good things and the measures that are being done, that that may help curtail things to a certain extent. Is it going to change the percep public perception of 90% of the people? Probably not, but I'll give you an example. So if you're looking at video gaming, okay, um, and we're seeing the convergence of spheres now between gambling and video gaming and media, whether you're seeing a pen and bar stool, a lot more immersive gameplay, changing expectations, etc. Video gaming right now is largely considered to be fine. The only concern is when the children, for instance, are playing too many hours and they feel as though they should be out and playing football or going for a run, whatever. Um, the term used for people who are playing too many or spending too many hours on a video game right now is over-engagement. 
Okay, compare that, let's say, to the gambling sphere where it's problem gambling. It sounds a lot harsher. And over-engagement, you kind of say it with a, with a smile. You see elements of regulation happening from a video gaming sphere, like on loot boxes and yes. certain territories, because there's an element of gambling. But if you take out your example of the 10% who place bets out in Sweden, I think it's probably fair to say that 90% of the population in Sweden play a game in some shape or form, whether it's a casual game over their phone, whether it's console, whatever. I think that this is going to be a key area then going forward. And I had asked a question to a, to a large group, and I had asked them, um, have you ever had uh, a player? Remember, this is, there's no real money betting or anything. Yes, there may be some in-game purchases, um, but there's a great degree of game mechanics that encourage somebody to keep on playing over there. There's an element of addiction that's widely unknown but considered to be widely acceptable. Yes. And I'd asked them, have you ever had a, um, a threat of suicide case um, stemming from one of your players, expecting them over the last two decades to turn around and say, oh yeah, we've had one, like for instance. They said, yeah, we get a couple a week. And that blew my mind because that showcases that yes, it's video gaming, but there are some deep, deep areas that are unseen, just as in the case of the gambling side of things, where there are some areas and perceptions that are believed to be perceived to be seen. Or and that's why I think that, to go back to the original point, being able to vocalize certain points, and that's why I love Kindred's, let's say, Journey to Zero, because they've committed to something Nobody really believes that they're going to be able to actually no. hit that target, but they've committed, they've pledged to it, and they are reporting on it in a transparent manner. Right. And I think this transparency is the key thing. It's the truth. It's that being open to be saying, this is our goal, this is what we aspire to be, and we're going to be committed to reporting about it. And I think that something like that can help change public perception if they can be hitting then the right eyes and if industry can be doing that at large and whilst controlling or maintaining then the black market um, then that may have a better ending than when it comes down to, to the gambling sphere in general yeah exactly those are the type of like powerful punchy messages that perhaps will eventually lead through and seep through to the uh, through the mainstream like the, the mainstream doesn't know what an uh, aml or kyc check is for example, the mainstream doesn't know that uh, if you want to play place a bet uh, today at Betson, and if you want to be a regular player there, that uh, essentially Betson is regulated like a bank. They need to know everything about you in order for, yeah. to let you be a player there. The, it, this, this information doesn't seep through to the industry. And but whereas me a bit is if we um, just to make the comparison to between tobacco and alcohol is um, that you see two industries that are. Uh, wildly different in how regulators uh, approach uh, regulations for them. You have one industry which is actively being taxed and restricted out of existence in the tobacco industry. Yeah. Uh, right. And you have the alcohol industry which has kind of found its purpose. And uh, so everyone can agree, kind of think that uh, the fact that we uh, that is legal to buy alcohol and that it should be um, available to uh, to, uh, to to anyone in of age. Uh, no one disagrees with this uh, fact, um, right? And, and so the alcohol industry is a lot more safer in the sense that the perception of the industry is uh, much more positive than, than tobacco. That's right. And that's what worries me of the gambling industry is that we haven't found our place uh, there. I, 
I think just to, just on that point, so I think that there is potentially a generation thing. So when we look at the prohibition of alcohol, I imagine that the older folk back in the day wouldn't have been looking at alcohol as favorably, and even then when it was legal, then perhaps looking at it kind of somewhat shunning it to an extent. So maybe there is an element of, as we see more widespread gambling regulation and generations come into play, um, that there may be that wider understanding. But I think just to give three examples on each of those things. So from a smoking perspective, the drawbacks are widely unseen until you actually get sick. And so that's almost right. forgotten. With alcohol, the example that they use is if you drink a bottle of whiskey, there's going to be a point where you can physically no longer drink anymore because you're going to be sick and you're going to pass out. But then from gambling, then there's no there's no bottom line, right? And there's the, the concept of chasing losses and everything, and you could find yourself in a dark, dark hole very quickly. I think that's the scary part, and that's why we keep on... The, the industry carries on focusing on responsible gambling. And there are a lot of measures that are pushing it and a lot of ex-problem gamblers who are trying to push it and there may be commercial considerations over there. If the industry can articulate the measures that it is taking to protect players largely and showcase that journey that they're on and show that it's not just a tick box exercise, then I think that that will, that will help. I like it. Uh, uh, we're going to start running off uh, here in a little bit, but I want to uh, go on the very specific topic of uh, Malta and the jurisdictions of, of Malta here. So at the moment, uh, some uh, iGaming companies are downsizing, uh, as we mentioned here at uh, Hero Gaming, uh, lost half of its workforce, Presenter Group uh, lost half of its workforce uh, here. And, and uh, at the same time, more uh, local, uh, local regulations are appearing in other jurisdictions. Um, the argument has been for a long time here that uh, if uh, other jurisdictions in Europe and elsewhere regulates, then what's the purpose of uh, staying in Malta as your home base, so to say? What, what do you think uh, about Malta uh, as a jurisdiction, as a home for the gaming industry and the home of gaming excellence, as our friend Ivan um, uh, has coined it? Uh, do, do you think that Malta has a place still in the ecosystem as we go forward? Uh, there's another point here as well with uh, remote working is becoming a thing. And so uh, many of the uh, C-level teams, uh, perhaps uh, in operators and suppliers within the industry that uh, are based in Malta doesn't necessarily have to be based here themselves. How does that affect uh, uh, the ecosystem over in Malta? In, in, in short, <laughs> does Malta have a future? Should I, I've stayed here for 11 years, uh, Russell. Should I stay here for 11 more? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look. So, yes, there have been challenges. Yes, the license reach has been diluted. One of the key advantages that have drawn a lot of operators to Malta Shores has been on the full imputation system. There may be challenges over there where we may be seeing more of a harmonized corporate tax rate then in the years to come. Yes, the cost of living has gone up. Yes, rent has gone up. Um, but I believe that there are still core advantages. So. The first thing is that ecosystem. There aren't many places around the world that can say that they've been regulating online gambling for almost two decades. And there's a lot of insight and 360 degree support that's come with it. I think that one of the key advantages that I regularly hear is from an MGA perspective, having that open regulatory authority is kind of unlike any authority that's really known around the world, bar perhaps a couple of other, let's say, dot-coms in the world where they have also an open business philosophy, um, that contributes to it. 
I think the ecosystem is something hard to replicate. Um, and that is why we still see businesses coming to Malta's shores. But does it mean that Malta should be resting on its laurels? Definitely not. And this is why I think when you're looking at, let's say you mentioned Ivan, looking at the esports side of things and the video gaming, I think that these are other aspects that are going to be contributing then to Malta's overall appeal, perhaps not just as the iGaming capital of the world, but as the gaming capital of the world. What Malta needs to be careful of is that we cannot be the best in class in absolutely everything. So we need to be using the ecosystem we've created to anticipate what's on the horizon. Say we've got strengths here and here and here. We should leverage this because we're going to take a punt on these three areas becoming big in the future. And we want to be the best in the world for that. But it's going to take more of a rifled approach then to be doing it. Um, so I think that there is that aspect. I know that Malta has got a number of other things up its sleeve, certain bolt-ons, like you mentioned the thing of the, of the we've known that talent has been an issue and bringing in people. I know that there've been certain measures that have tried to remedy that, but now does let's say the digital nomads visa that's going around to try and encourage people then to becoming flocking to Malta. Um, there were, so let's say when we looked at, at the gray listing, okay, locally, we had, had a fear that we would see an, a degree of exodus. We didn't see too much. Of course, the question that we had discovered was, it's very hard to be measuring what could have been, which never turned up. You know, So if a business was planning on investing, then that's not on your figures. And you, um, But I think that Malta has got a future. I think it's got its, some clever things up its sleeves, but it has got challenges as well. And an example would be, we see one of the most popular jurisdictions right now has been Isle of Man. And why is Isle of Man? Isle of Man is a great regulator then as well. They have a good framework. They don't have the same access then to Europe, but then Malta's access then to Europe, at least from a licensing passport angle, has been limited. But there's an appeal for Asia over there, where there are a lot of funds are coming in then from Asia, at least that's what it's assumed to be, which is appealing once again for many operators that are trying to be securing funds to either support then the white markets or some of the grayer markets there where they may be holding certain legal opinions. So Isle of Man is, 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 is quite prominent on that front. Um, we see the things that are happening in Curaçao. Yes, we've seen a lot of businesses saying, okay, just going to carve out the business. I'm going to have half of it just focused on the shadier markets, we'll say, through Curaçao and then be using Malta then more credibility, looking at the disputed markets, let's say like a Brazil, for instance, or something like that. Um, there are things like AML measures and stuff. Malta always has to walk a fine line. So you, you, you want to be seen as having been a long-standing regulator, as a credible, all-knowing regulator, but your dot-com policy is going to be different to that of a dot-country, where the dot-country can focus exclusively on the country and close the parameters as much as possible and fine operators for falling foul of it. Malta has to be showcasing that it is fining operators, but it can't be to the same degree as dot country is doing, because that would be an extra reason as to why an operator would say, why are we here? Let's, let's leave. But equally so, Malta cannot not be fining, because then it loses the advantage of Malta being able to say, we've been doing this for 20 years. You guys have been doing it for three years. Look at all the data that we've got. So there's a fine line. But I think the MGA is working on some exciting initiatives that will further contribute to Malta's attractiveness. And I know it's front of mind for, 
for for Carl and Peter and Kinga on a on a regular basis and Rebecca, what can they do then to future proof Malta and Ivan? <laughs> and we also have parchment, so that's not <laughs> <laughs> in our younger days. So yes. Russell, yes. Uh, Russell, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on here today. Uh, you are truly one of the industry leaders, uh, both on the American and the European side, very well respected on both sides of the pond. Uh, thank you so much for giving me your time today. And uh, by the way, I'm looking down at my notes here. We went through, I think, three out of like 15 points today. <laughs> time is just absolutely rushing by, but that hopefully means that I'll have the pleasure of having you back here soon. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Pierre. Thank you, Russell. Cheers. <laughs>